So um, we... On the eve of a very, very big rocket launch, satellite launch, and a, a really a big day for the Weather Enterprise tomorrow as we launch our second of four weather satellites that NOAA is planning to launch uh, in the upcoming years to kind of continue the GOES constellation and keep it going, help to give us reliable satellite data over the next couple of years, and improve our forecast and warnings. We've got a great expert tonight, uh, satellite expert Jim Yo from... Uh, Noah joins us. We appreciate you coming on. Sorry for some of the uh, tech difficulties we had at the start there, but uh, glad we could get you on. Hey, glad to be here. And so we launched Goes R what about a year and a half ago now. Give us just yeah. kind of your, your thoughts on where we've come since then. Well, the launch of Goes R was really exciting. You know, I guess now I, I tend to think of it as Goes 16 now that's uh, in a geo orbit and it's operational. Uh, we really have been impressed by what's occurred. That is, you know, we, we you know, you, you, you have high hopes when you put new technology into space and uh, all, all the uh, things, our expectations have come to fruition. We've really benefited from having the advanced baseline imager providing us greater detail at four times the uh, resolution, uh, three times as many spectral channels that help us identify features uh, in the atmosphere and on the land and ocean surfaces uh, better. And then finally having five times the uh, scan rates so that we're refreshing our imagery five times more quickly. Uh, all those things have really borne a lot of fruition. Um, even from the very early test phases, forecasters in the field and even out to the general public, people were really reacting positively uh, to those, not just for the wow factor, but for the benefits they were able to uh, provide in terms of making better forecasts, and that in turn enabling people to make better decisions uh, and better plans in order to protect their lives and properties or simply to plan their activities more effectively. And so GOES uh, kind of got its, I guess, trial run when it was in its, its preliminary pre-operational test phase over the summer. But some of that data was used operationally in many forecast offices to, to kind of help Warren, give us some examples of where the GOES-R satellite has really just proven its worth over the past. Yeah, I, I can give you a couple. One of the most significant ones in terms of, uh, you know, lives saved or at least, you know, lives uh, moved out of harm's way was when Hurricane Harvey made uh, landfall near Corpus Christi. Of course, you know, that was, that was a, uh, a huge system dumping a lot of rain and, and heavy winds on top of, you know, of course, with the hurricane. Um, we were able to track the motion of the eye so closely with uh, using GO-16 that uh, FEMA was able to send people out in during the, the eye passage in Corpus Christi and move people uh, to safer locations uh, before the back end of the storm hit, uh, roughly about 200 people. So there's a, you know, a, a very dramatic example. On the other end of the spectrum, there, were, there was an event in the uh, fall where um, the airport in uh, San Francisco was socked in by heavy fog. Big surprise, you know, for San Francisco. But this did cause a, a you know, a, a closure of the airport. No flights could take off or land. The forecast was not favorable for that fog dissipating. However, using the imagery from the uh, uh, the ABI with that rapid refresh and the fine detail, it was clear that the fog was dissipating more rapidly than forecast. And so that uh, that closure was uh, lifted 
um, earlier than expected. This allowed 32 planes to land on schedule that otherwise would have been diverted. The airlines say they saved about $100,000 in fuel. I don't know, like if you're an air traveler, you know, just the aggravation of being diverted, you know, being a one passenger on any one of those planes, let alone all the passengers on 32 of them, you, you think this is, this is a huge thing in terms of keeping your plans intact uh, as well as avoiding uh, other expenses being uh, incurred. And so now we're getting ready to launch GOES-S, which is going to cover the West Coast and the Pacific Ocean. Uh, with GOES-R and GOES-16, one of the things I noticed is that even on the Western periphery, uh, kind of that, uh, I guess, the edge of the satellite view towards portions of Washington, when it was in the centered over the United States, we were still getting excellent imagery, even on the fringes. Uh, is that just part of the higher resolution data? Well, that's part of the, the nature of scanning from geostationary and also having, as you say, the high resolution, uh, very uh, good uh, pointing knowledge uh, of the um, of the advanced baseline imager. Uh, a big deal, though, from, from my perspective, when we have this, uh, uh, this two-part constellation with GOES-R, GOES-S, or GOES-16, GOES-17, uh, uh, however you prefer to refer to them, is we'll certainly ha we'll have double coverage over most of the of the continental United States. Uh, so we'll be able to see um, see our you know where we live with both of those satellites. But we'll be having coverage to the east as far as the west coast of Africa coming from GOES 16 or GOES East, uh, as far west as New Zealand from GOES uh, West. So it's you know, the, the weather that we experience where we live doesn't uh, originate uh, where we are. As an example with hurricanes, of course, uh, those originate as, uh, you know, as waves off the west coast of Af Africa that deepen into tropical depressions and storms and hurricanes. Uh, and of course, a lot of the winter weather we see, not just on the west coast, but indeed coming across the entire U.S., is really originating out over the Pacific Ocean. Um, and even though we think of, of GOES as being kind of the sentinel that gives us, uh, that really enhances our short-term warnings and forecasts, we use it in our longer-term global numerical weather prediction models as well. We'll be looking at winds that are derived from the uh, GOES West imagery uh, and feeding those into our weather models. And that, that again, will be impacting forecasts um, well into the future, you know, three, five, and seven days for the uh, continental U.S. That's one of the things I always try to stress to our viewers. You know, we're here in the uh, Appalachian Mountain Range, and a lot of times we'll get that energy moving through the Pacific Ocean and coming ashore there towards a uh, portion of Washington State. And I stress there's not a whole lot of ground observation stations out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. But with GOES now, it's going to be awesome to have that higher resolution data, more frequent data, be able just to show it visually uh, and some of the short waves and energy coming ashore. No, absolutely. I mean, this is a big deal. And, and of course, you know, in California, where they're looking at at rainy season, you know, the uh, excuse me, the Pineapple Express uh, uh, storms that come from uh, Hawaii and whatnot. And they're, they're interested in those, whether it's raining or not. They're, you know, because they've been experiencing a lot of drought and water shortages. So they're 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 looking at that very closely. Uh, another thing that happens in the western uh, part of the U.S. is this um, the uh, the imager we're getting now with the added channels allows us to spot uh, uh, and to, to detect wildfires more rapidly. During the, the fire season, actually, uh, last year, in some cases, uh, it was actually satellite uh, uh, forecasters uh, who were spotting uh, the onset of wildfires before uh, local on-the-ground reports were being made. So this is helping get uh, firefighters uh, into, um, into respond to fires. 
uh, more rapidly before they became larger fires that uh, that required more resources to uh, put out or contain. Talk about the uh, mesoscale sectors for a moment. I understand that once both satellites are operational, we're going to have four sectors, right? Are those going to be able to be moved around? Uh, yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. Um, each of the two GOES satellites will be able to scan two sectors uh, simultaneously with one minute of uh, resolution. You can actually better that if, for example, from GOES 16 right now, you could you could target an area the same uh, area twice, but offset the I'll set them by 30 seconds so that effectively you achieve 30 second resolution uh, for something that, uh, you know, it's ex evolving extremely uh, rapidly. So again, you would be able to have uh, four such sectors with one minute uh, resolution when uh, over the conus, for example, when, um, or in points beyond with the, uh, the full constellation in place. And that'll be really exciting. Uh, certainly, you know, in an active uh, hurricane season, you can, can envision having more than one storm that you'd like to uh, sample rapidly. You know, one that's impacting the coast, another that's developing. Uh, there's nothing that says you won't have a fire event or, uh, you know, in the, in the West Coast or something like that at the same time that you're having an East Coast hurricane. So um, we do have a protocol for um, to determine, you know, when and where we'll do these uh, rapid scans. You know, it's, uh, and it, I can envision there will be some uh, competition uh, for those from time to time. We even have one concern. I'm smiling because we talked about this today. We were hoping we could do rapid scans over uh, Cape uh, uh, Canaveral for to, from GOES uh, R to support the GOES S launch, but there is uh, there's some critical weather in the central United States, which I think has precluded that. Sorry, Shay, you can't get a sector scanner of your house for tomorrow. <laughs> well, that does lead us to a question that we asked each other before the show. <laughs> Uh, going into the launch, looking at the weather in Florida, it looks like it could, could be a little bit windy down there tomorrow, maybe from the west, southwest, or maybe a little bit of an offshore wind. Talk about the criteria for being able to launch on time at 5.02 p.m. Is there What's the wind threshold and what's the weather threshold that would maybe stall or, or set it back on its time? Well, let me give you the short answer. We look good in, in, uh, in that regard. I had the good fortune of sitting on a panel with some folks who were more expert in the launch uh, details than I am this afternoon. They told me that uh, with our launch vehicle, we can really and fully loaded like this, we can withstand uh, low-level winds of up to a 35 knots, and we're expecting winds that are no worse, uh, no, no greater than 15 to 20 knots tomorrow uh, at, at at 5 p.m. and probably tapering off some after that. Uh, of course, a bigger concern would be upper-level winds, uh, you know, you know, and the wind shear that would be. Uh, associated with them, but you know we're well south of the of the jet stream right now, so we um, we uh, we don't anticipate any problem in that regard. So uh, it looks like uh, for tomorrow at least uh, the the wind loading shouldn't be a factor for launch. How much do NASA and NOAA kind of work together in the final days before a launch? Um, how much is that partnership still going on even up to launch day? Oh, it's 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 a very very tightly. Uh, we're very uh, much uh, tightly linked at this point. And I, I wouldn't want to rule out, of course, uh, the, the linkage with, uh, you know, our private sector partners, you know, with uh, with uh, Lockheed Martin doing the launch, uh, for, for example. Um, it, it's uh, everyone is uh, very focused on their own uh, part of the mission and on, on the launch getting, uh, getting us there. But uh, everyone is very concerned about what's uh, going on in an integrated fashion as well. And, of course, for the, over the life of the program, the linkage is, is uh, extremely tight. 
just thinking back to some of the first goes rockets we were talking about this earlier do you think when they've launched the first goes they ever even envision what we have today you know, I often ask myself about that. I wonder what they really were thinking, you know, that the, what they expected to get out of it. Uh, I mean, sometimes I look back at some of the early uh, images of not just from GOES, but from, you know, from the first Tiro sat satellite in 1960. And, you know, to to someone who's, who's watching a um, weather broadcast on television today and seeing the imagery, you might look at it and say, boy, that was really uh, unimpressive. But I'm sure to the people who were looking at that time, and then when I was a kid, you know, I was looking at that. I, I was, I was certainly impressed by it. So I think we've, we've, we've certainly met our expectations, uh, but typically exceeded them, both in the quality of what we were able to produce in space, uh, but also in how we've been able to apply it uh, more and more successfully, both to research meteorology or environmental science, and 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 ultimately, most importantly to me, to operational forecasting to support. You know, public safety and and public decision making. Gary, I think it was you and I were talking earlier, kind of saying, where do we where do we go from here? You know, what what's the the next step after goes 16, 17, 18, 19? Uh, give us your dream view, I guess, of what satellites could become. You know, you know, I'm I'm kind of like um, like Jim was saying. I mean, I I grew up in the same era he did when you you know the first satellite pictures came down, and it's like wow, that's pretty impressive. And then you look at today, but it, it's kind of like television sets. You think about TVs and how much they've improved and you just can't imagine them improving anymore. And actually, Jim, that's what I wanted to ask you. Is there actually any difference between the, the GO-16 and GO-17? Is there are, are they identical satellites or is there anything that's been tweaked out a little bit more with the 17 that you've learned with the 16? Well, we fixed uh, certain mistakes uh, for from the of view of what, what we think of as a of um uh you know a neutral atmosphere weather we're really identical the only thing is we've we've seen this promise of fulfilled you know or come to realization with goes 16 and goes east and now we're going to see that expanded to cover the entire hemisphere uh when we get goes uh 17 up but there is le there are lessons learned incorporated uh goes the goes r series does include uh four uh sensors for uh, solar and space weather um, monitoring. So because, you know, space weather being a part of the NOAA mission as well, providing uh, warnings and forecast of uh, solar storms and, 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 um, and uh, you know, the downstream effects in, in, in the Earth environment. Uh, one of those instruments is a magnetometer. Uh, the magnetometer itself is fine. The design of that, you know, it, it met specification uh, um, as, as built. Uh, one thing that happened on GO-16 is apparently there's a source of magnetism that's too close to the magnetometer, so it's it's there's a lot of work trying to clean that up. Um, you know, somebody said once, so you know, you can uh, you can mill chaff, but you can't make wheat out of it, and it's the same thing. You can't uh, you can't make a signal out of noise entirely. Well, so but where the lessons learned have come into that is uh, they've worked really hard. Uh, in the integration of that magnetometer on GOES S, it's going up tomorrow to avoid having uh, any onboard sources of magnetism that uh, affect that. I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be one of my questions. You know, with having two of these space weather sensors up now, uh, you know, what was the GOES 17 satellite going to be used for that GOES 16 wasn't going to be used for, I guess, in space weather monitoring? Right. That's, that's one place where that will come into play. But of course, and, and of course, having more, um, 
you know, um, from the point of view of uh, space weather, you know, we're, we're, we're um, you know, you're always trying to have, you know, coverage of the full, you know, um, how do I say this, and not Earth-centered, but Sun-centered coordinates, you know, having two of them gives you a fuller view of the, of the, uh, of the uh, magnetic environment uh, and the space environment around the Earth. So even if both were working perfectly, you'd get a better view. view. And of course, with having the magnetometer working better on GOES-17 is going to be an improvement for us. This is kind of a random question, but I, I know NOAA does a lot of the space weather forecasting stuff, but does NASA do any of it as well? And if so, can NASA request to look at something specifically to well, NOAA? Well, NASA does look at the data uh, routinely. In fact, NASA has a very strong research component in space weather that's uh, uh, centered at Goddard Space Goddard Space Flight Center. Look, sorry, it's been a long day here, but uh, <laughs> a lot of interviews uh, uh, outside of Washington. NOAA has the operational space weather uh, prediction requirement, uh, and that's done by the Space Weather Prediction Center out in Boulder, Colorado. Gotcha. Um, let's talk about uh, the Pacific Ocean, a big, vast open ocean. Just I'm for it, yeah. The advantages uh, GOES is going to offer for maybe shipping or hurricane monitoring, uh, even Hawaii, you know, and just hanging out there in the middle of nowhere, quote unquote, um, they're going to be able to see a lot more things that are going to impact them. Absolutely. Uh, and I can, I can tell you that the Western and Pacific regions uh, of the Weather Service have been a little jealous here for the last few months. Uh, since uh, you know, Go 16 became Go East, and I think they're 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 feeling a lot uh, better served uh, with the uh, with the coming of Go 17 to become Go West out there. But you've you've hit on exactly uh, all the points that are there. There's not over over any of the oceans. There's really not sufficient coverage uh, simply because you don't you know you can't have ground based radars out there providing the kind of coverage we have over the continental U.S. We don't have uh, routine radio sound launches, except from a few islands that are very, uh, uh, very sparse. So we really rely on satellite data and some and some ship reports and aircraft reports over the main air routes uh, for the Pacific. And the Pacific is hugely important because you know there it's the biggest, warmest ocean. Uh, you have you know you know we we talk a lot about uh, hurricanes impacting the East Coast, but of course you know we we need this coverage to, to cover our typhoons in the Pacific Basin uh, as well as well. Not not just the ones that uh, that impact Hawaii and uh, American Samoa and the and the West Coast, but of course, you know, we we have commercial interests that go across the entire Pacific Basin. Um, air traffic is a big big deal, and of course, you know, over over the continental U.S. again, we have radars that tell us where thunderstorms are. Uh, uh, one of the really neat things that's going to come with the the GOES-R series is we'll not only have the finer imagery that shows us. Um, where thunderstorms are in much better detail in the imagery. You can see overshooting cloud tops, for example, that are indicative of really strong convection in the presence of thunderstorms. But in addition to that, you have the, the uh, global lightning mapper that we have uh, had a chance to talk about. Uh, the GLM is taking 500 frames per minute over it uh, for, for both uh, GOES-16 and eventually, of course, GOES-17, um, showing us exactly where the strongest uh, uh, um, thunderstorms are and, and, and collections of them. So we get a much better idea of where a system may be decaying, where it may be strengthening, where there's a likely outbreak for severe thunderstorms or even uh, tornadoes, for example. Um, this is a big deal for our Aviation Weather Center, which wants to route traffic, uh, you know, uh, away from, uh, uh, from those kinds of storms, you know, keep them away from the associated turbulence. So they have a much uh, better idea of where that's going on. 
Uh, this is also a big opportunity for research meteorology, which I think will lead to better modeling in the future when we're able to look at that imagery um, uh, and the overshooting tops, for example, in conjunction with the lightning maps. Uh, uh, I think we'll, we'll be able to, uh, we're going to learn a lot from that that's going to uh, play into the future of our severe storm uh, weather forecasting. I think the rest to of follow well, oh yeah, to, sorry, sorry, okay, I'm just uh, stumbling all over you. Follow up on the question about the Pacific. Um, how is this going to help uh, with uh, ENSO monitoring and La Nina uh, and El Nino uh, conditions? Well, one of the things we'll be able to do is we do have uh, uh, channels in the imager that are sensitive to uh, variations in sea surface temperature. Uh, so of course that that's a big factor uh, for for the. Uh, uh, the uh, southern oscillation. So we'll be using the the, the goes uh, the goes series for that. Of course, we combine those with the polar satellite data as well, as well as with uh, in situ uh, measurements in order to do that uh, monitoring and prediction. So I think what we'll have we'll certainly have uh, we're, we should have more accurate and uh, and more detailed maps there. I don't know if it will give us. It, I'm not really an expert in that, so it's it's hard to say for me for me to say how much uh, lead time that'll give us more in prediction. But we'll certainly have better and clearer maps of that as it evolves. Speaking of the Pacific, my question is uh, overlap. So we have the goes east. We also have the Himawari 8, Himawari 9. It goes west. Where is that going to fit in between? Is there going to be some overlap between the two, maybe some enhanced products out of it? And also the other part is how far north will this go? Would it also cover the Arctic and some of the areas that we need some more studies on? So get us to the edge of the Arctic. We'll have very good coverage uh, for Alaska, which is heavily dependent on satellite data. Um, in fact, in Alaska, because it is at such high latitudes and the polar satellites come over so much more frequently there than they do over, uh, you know, the, the mid latitudes in the continental United States. You know, frequently in Alaska, they kind of re, uh, look at the polar satellites as f fulfilling that sort of a, a role of being a, a constant watchdog in the sky that, that the rest of us uh, look at uh, or, or expect from from goes, but there's actually been a lot of um, of excitement uh, from uh, at least earlier when 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 goes 16 was a little bit farther west uh, from the Alaskan region. We 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 really do extend far. Our coverage will extend as far north as Alaska, as far south as you know the the tip of South America. Um, and then I kind of almost forgot the first part of your question, Shay. So, uh, oh, yeah, I was asking about overlap with the GOES East satellite and Himawari 8 and 9 over on the Pacific side. So it looks like we're, we're sort of getting the, the entire northern hemisphere covered. Absolutely. And we do, uh, of course, the northern hemisphere and, and extending to the southern. What's really happening with Himawari is uh, in GOES West is we're able to get that uh, coverage around the equator, uh, you know, extending farther and farther west and more seamlessly which uh, I think, again, is really important for, uh, uh, for all of us. You know, we, we, uh, we already use Himawari data in our numerical weather prediction models because, again, they're upstream from us for a lot of our, of our weather, particularly in the winter. And that was uh, the imager on Himawari, of course, is uh, uh, um, basically a copy of the ABI, uh, very similar in the, in the, in the, uh, in the construction, the, the channel selection, and the uh, the uh, the type of resolution we see from it. So that was a great has been a great opportunity for us to see before the launch of GOES 16 what we could expect uh, from the ABI uh, on, on the GOES R series. Now, Jim, you hit on something about Shay. You were through, right? Yes, sir. I didn't want to step on you, man. 
Um, uh, Jim, uh, you hit on exactly what I'm kind of looking forward to, too. Uh, Go 16 wasn't operational during the severe weather season last year. And the lightning detection capabilities, really looking forward to see what the system can, can, can do. Um, what, how exactly does Go 16, how is it able to actually detect lightning uh, way down here on the surface of the Earth? Um, okay, there's, this is actually a, 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 another type of imager that's making actually 500 images per second. Uh, it's able to uh, detect and discriminate. Uh, it can detect both cloud to cloud and cloud to, to ground uh, lightning strikes, which, you know, of course, both of which are occurring uh, uh, in, in severe weather, um, it, you know, but uh, via different mechanisms. Uh, I'm not particularly adept in, in, you know, in the knowledge of the, the internal workings of the lightning detector. I'm, I'm a little bit more of a, on the user end of it, but, uh, but we're certainly very excited to have that because again, as we say, when, you, when, you, when you're looking for thunderstorms, um, you know, what we have been dependent on in the U.S., in the continental U.S. Uh, for the last 30 years, very successfully has been with the, uh, the weather radar network, of course. Now, that doesn't help you over the, uh, again, offshore, but another place where you have problems with it is in the western United States where the radar coverage is often cut off by mountainous terrain. So um, this is going to be a really big deal, I think, for, uh, for looking at detecting and, and, and following the evolution of convective weather, severe weather and thunderstorms in the western U.S. where we aren't able to rely on radars the same way as we are in the central plains and, and points east. Yeah, and I wanted to jump in and talk about that. So I'm actually from the Four Corners area of New Mexico, and there's absolutely no radar up there. So it would drive me nuts looking for thunderstorms and looking for storms on the radar when it looks clear. We don't right. have the radar up there. So I think that this is going to be very good for that area, especially in other areas like that that are just, you know, missing that radar coverage. Absolutely. I've given another example of that in sort of an unexpected area, you know, an area that had been served well by radar, of course, was Puerto Rico until Hurricane Maria hit. And, of course, the radar was knocked out. So at that point, uh, having the, the, uh, the GOES data, uh, not admittedly not as much the lightning data at that time, but the imagery, that became the only game in town. And that uh, was really important, uh, you know, when, when there's, there's nothing else. Uh, it was good. If you're going to have a substitute, have a really good one. And that, that's uh, what, uh, what, what we had for um, forecasting uh, and monitoring in Puerto Rico when Hurricane Maria was, was uh, uh, impacting them. Definitely. I'd like to turn back for a minute, back towards uh, the launch and then the timeline going after that. With uh, Gozar, obviously we had a fairly lengthy checkout period being a, a brand new satellite. It was checked out over, uh, I think it was just about over the uh, longitude that uh, Memphis is in here, about 89 degrees west. That's right. Um, is, uh, so is the uh, Goes S when it goes up, I guess the checkout period and so forth is gonna be shorter and it, will it go straight into orbit in the Goes West position or is it going to do a maneuver like Goes East did? It will do a maneuver like goes easy. It will go into a central location for a checkout period of about uh, six months, roughly. Um, you know, it takes takes about 17 days actually to achieve geostationary orbit. You know, you know and it, tomorrow you'll get up to what's called the geotransfer position, um, which gets you almost there. And then you start doing a series of maneuvers uh, with the onboard, you know, uh, uh, thrusters that uh, boost you up to the uh to the uh, geostationary uh, uh, orbit. 
Uh, it's good to have it over the central U.S. when it starts just because that allows you to do validation and checkout with all of your uh, the systems at your disposal. It'll be very closely overlapped with uh, GOES East, GOES 16, for example. It will be partially overlapping with GOES, uh, the current GOES West, which is GOES 15, uh, but also with all the ground-based instrumentation and, uh, and everything. This uh, um, it, it does take a while to turn on the instruments. So they, they're not up and running, of course, from the... Uh, from the moment the satellites uh, uh, is launched. So um, now having said that, uh, even though it will not be at its operational um, 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 position until uh, you know roughly six months after launch, the data will be uh, available to forecasters for you know for evaluation and, and, and comparison. And that I can tell you that evaluation and comparison quickly turned into use. Uh, all these examples that uh, we've talked about collectively with the uh, GO 16 are are indicative of that. So somewhere in the you know about six months after launch, it'll be allowed to drift or actually encouraged to drift, uh, so that it's about uh, as far west as California, but centered over the the equator. And at that point, it will become goes west. That was going to be my question: was when uh, kind of a rough estimate of how much time before we start getting non-operational data into the products. Right. And well, and certainly from the, the point of eye candy, at least, I think we can expect to start seeing uh, some, some preliminary uh, select images, you know, uh, from uh, the ABI probably about two months after launch sometime in May. The countdown's already on. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's I, exciting. That's, uh, <clears throat> I think. So uh, I, I guess, t are you down there for the launch now? I am. This is going to be my first satellite launch. I have mixed feelings about it. I've never been to one. Every satellite I cared about has gone up successfully. So I hope I'm not, you know, like uh, like messing with a good track record and spoiling the emojo. But uh, but uh, no, I, I feel a lot of confidence coming from the from the launch team, from the NASA people, and the and the uh, the Lockheed folks. Uh, the weather reports are good. The 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 uh, the launch vehicle has an excellent history, and we have we have a la large launch window. So. Uh, someone explained, you know, if you've got between 5 p.m. and 7 p.m., if somebody strays into the uh, restricted area offshore, you actually have time to get them out of there, you know, be, uh, without losing the whole opportunity. So um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good. You know, I, I think we're going to get this thing uh, uh, up tomorrow. Good old wayward boat on Twitter is always the uh, demise of a lot of things. I, I had the opportunity to be down there for, <clears throat> excuse me, for uh, Gozar, and it, it was actually an emotional experience because, you know, you've put so much trust and, uh, and hope into this rocket that's going to carry this satellite up. And uh, when it actually happened, it was a, a nice moment. Where do you get to watch from? Uh, I'm actually going to be at the press center uh, okay. at uh, Kennedy uh, just to keep uh, doing some interviews with NASA TV, particularly one right after launch. So uh, I don't, I don't get the prime viewing location. I this this is a, a work mission for me, not a, not a paid vacation, but uh, hey, I'm, I'm excited uh, all the same. Well, you know, and that, that's the thing. I mean, you know, getting satellites in the space, getting people in the space, that's a complicated thing. I mean, NASA makes it look easy. Elon Musk makes it look easy. But um, I know, Jim, you're going to be on pins and needles tomorrow. Oh, absolutely. And you don't, you know, you don't have to be right on site to be on pins and needles so with, with the goes uh, our launch i was you know watching on closed circuit tv from the satellite operations facility in suitland maryland and i was on pins and needles there you know <laughs> even just you know with the, and, I, and i didn't think i would be you know driving in through the 
through the rain and sleet on that afternoon and you know far away from sunny Florida but but uh, we we were all uh, you you get in there and you're, you're you're waiting for this and you have a lot of uh you know you have a lot of your time and uh you know in energy I mean really a lot of your career invested in it and you're looking forward to it making the the, the remainder of your career the work that you're going to do during your career um more meaningful and better so yeah it's 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 big stakes and uh and um it, we're excited but uh you know that that excitement has both uh both the you know, the joyful part of it and also that uh the part that's just a little fretful now, I, got, I got two questions real fast guys if, if you don't mind what jim what's the life expectancy on 16 and 17 yeah these are have a design life of uh basically 10 years with the with five years uh on orbit storage now that's you know, my experience with the satellites is that um, they tend to outlive their design life, so that's pretty conservative there. So we'll have actually the goes. Uh, what's the next uh, sequence in the RST? You know, T, T and U, yeah. Yeah, I have to go through the alphabet like too. back in grade school. You know, it's a I'm a numbers guy. What can I say? Um, but uh, the launch of goes T is planned for 2020. Now that doesn't mean it would become immediately operational. It would be put into that central location and in, in an on-orbit storage, uh, which d- accomplishes two things. That means it's ready to replace, presumably, you know, goes R, you know, being, being the older of the two, uh, would be the one that would be taken out of s- service first. So, those, you know, you, you never really know how those things uh, pan out. So it'd be there for very rapid um, uh, uh, replacement of either of the, of the satellites that when, when one should fail or when one should just reach uh, you know, a point of, uh, of aging where you feel it's more prudent to replace it. The other reason to put it in space, as I understand, is it's more economical to store a satellite in space on orbit than it is to store it you know, in, a, in, a, in a bay and try to keep it clean and all on Earth. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned T and U. Are, are there any plans to put any different instrumentation, make them better uh, down the road? Uh, T and U will have basically the same payloads. Uh, you know, if we have lessons learned uh, from from S in addition to R, you know, the, the magnetometer example I mentioned earlier being the biggest one I can think of so far. Certainly, modifications would be made into place, but these would be more, you know, fixing problems or tweaking uh, rather than radical redesigns. Um, I know that the um, design phase of for the Goes R series actually began almost 20 years ago in 1999. I think the first metal was cut for sensors uh, for the ABI starting in 2004. The first you know, real satellite construction for GOES, uh, GOES-R began about 2009 or 2010, and you know, it you know, was delivered five years after that. So it's a long lead time on, the, on all of these. So I guess you know, pretty soon then you can say it's, it's time for us to start thinking about what will be possible 20 years from now? What will our needs be? Because that should be the driver, you know, before the technology, you say, what, what's the mission you're trying to accomplish? What are the data and observations you need in order to accomplish those? And then you start thinking about what are the sensors I need, you know, in, in any particular orbit in order to, to achieve that. So yeah, probably, you know, that maybe that'll be one of the things I get to do uh, here in the, towards the, uh, in, in my golden years is to start looking towards you know, what are those requirements going to be, if not the solution for achieving them, but uh, what are those requirements going to look like in 20 years? Cool. Thank yeah. you. I have a viewer question that came in from uh, JP Kalb asking, you know, now that we're launching all these new ones, what's going to happen to like those uh, 15 and 14, where are those going to be placed? 
Yeah, they're put in into orbital storage as well. Uh, and what that means is that their um, their sensors are turned off, but their you know their lifeblood systems are kept on. You know, their their their, their brain stays on and their comm systems stay on, so we can monitor their health and safety and overall condition, and we can call them back into service, provided we have enough fuel to get them into the into the right position. Um, so that they could become a backup, uh, you know, it, they, they could come in and fill if we were losing one of our primary operational ones. But again, we want to have our back our backup to really be uh, as capable, um, that is, of the R series, uh, ideally, as opposed to having ones from the old NOP series. We can uh, use them. We've, we've talked about sharing one of those uh, and moving it into an orbit uh, favored by the Air Force. We'd certainly be open to, uh, to doing that as well. When they run out of fuel and uh, are almost out of fuel entirely, or when they're, you know, they're, um, the sensors have degraded uh, past the point of, of functioning, or maybe they're, they're you know, more likely their solar arrays and their batteries are, are have degraded past uh, uh, functioning well. What what you actually do with the geostationaries is you boost them into a slightly higher orbit, so they'll kind of be out of the ge geostationary uh, place and just leave them up there indefinitely. I heard one time that a lot of the old satellites get used for uh, kind of Air Force missions or uh, communications missions. Is that true, or they're they're kind of repurposed? Uh, they 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 are repurposed, and we sent we've certainly uh, lent once lent, lent or sent some uh, to other countries. We've uh, we in the past, I think, Ghost Twelve was to move so to provide better coverage for Brazil, for example. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, to do we had a question to the it, if something doesn't launch tomorrow is the backup date and which i understand is friday in case of, for a weather hold or something like that right right okay we're not hoping for that but it's there in no case no we're not hoping for and I, I i i'm not sure when what 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 happens if we don't launch on friday <laughs> i have to go home on saturday you know, yeah so you know, the, the the honey do list gets longer and longer uh, she's not going to put up with uh with my absence uh, uh too long no matter how exciting this is but uh <laughs> That's for ULA and the range to decide, I guess. So. Exactly. All righty. Well, I'll open up uh, the floor to any of the panel members. I think, uh, Shay, do you have something? Or Actually, that was answered. Somebody asked about what happens to the old satellites, and um, he says that they stay in uh, in storage, space storage. So uh, I think I'll pass that on to Eric. Eric uh, had something with COD. Yeah, I just uh, thought I'd kind of chime in with here at the end, because I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, okay, so where can I view all this great data that's coming down? Uh, one of my favorite places to view it is the College of DuPage uh, Weather Viewer. Um, you can go to uh, weather.cod.edu and search for the satellite and radar there. Um, they got a really, really nice um, viewing uh, capabilities there, lots of zooms, and, and you can look at the meso data every uh, minute when it comes in, change your channels, and Product descriptions, the whole thing, really nice. But they um, they announced today that they released a major update to that, um, and it includes things like um, adding your own mapping overlays, data overlays like watches and warnings, radar, surface data. Uh, you could toggle on and off the GLM uh, lightning mapper data. Um, lots of really cool things in there. They create animated GIFs. Um, so if you're looking for a place to go and actually view this data, um, you can uh, check out the College of DuPage plug for them uh, and um, yeah, but definitely check it out. It's it's excellent. And the upgrade is great, too. Now I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds like fun. All righty. Well, thank you uh, so much, Jim, for joining us tonight. We hope everything goes smoothly tomorrow. You uh, enjoy the launch and uh, can actually enjoy it for when it goes up before you're bombarded by media. Uh, 
being one of the no, it's going to be fun the, the whole thing will be fun and this and this so. has been an absolute pleasure it's a uh, been fun to talk to this uh, panel with a uh, so much engagement and so many uh, great questions well we uh we're all excited and looking forward to it I, i've got my alarm set to tune into nasa tv tomorrow and uh we'll watch it all together and james wanted me to mention that uh you can watch our coverage of the launch right here on our youtube or not youtube our facebook channel uh james will be taking care of that and then you guys can watch it right here on our hey. facebook channel tomorrow yeah and while, while we're trading links can i just point out the the uh the uh, Twitter feed at NOAA Satellites. Uh, that's a, a good one, just not only for information about the launch, but about GOES-R and GOES-S and all of the NOAA satellites. Sure, I'm sorry. I We usually give our guests an opportunity to uh, plug any social media outlets they want to. I just, it's been a crazy day. I forgot to. I, I just bought for it. <laughs> hey, that's all right. It works. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, we've got some great upcoming shows in the next couple of weeks as well. You can get information on that on our website or by staying tuned to our social media channels. And we will see everyone here next week for another edition of the Carolina Weather Group Weather Podcast. There's only one cargo ship designed to transport rockets for United Launch Alliance. And tonight, it's pulling into Port Canaveral with the robust flight hardware of an Atlas V. We're a high-tech vessel, high maneuverability. We have to be because uh, we get into some tight areas on shallow rivers. The Delta Mariner is unique. It has uh, two apt Z-drives coupled by computer with the uh, bow thrusters that turns 360 degrees on demand. This crew has work to do. In less than four weeks, the rocket must be safely delivered, inspected, and assembled in order to successfully launch NOAA's highly advanced GOES-S weather satellite. I sense from the crew the pride being part of this mission. And when I put this vessel alongside the dock, it, it is a, a very accomplished feeling that we all have. The arrival of the Mariner is the start of operations for the flow of a rocket. Teams from ULA and NASA's Launch Services Program start by unchaining the Atlas V booster and Centaur components, wasting no time in developing a plan and getting organized for transport. We're going to take the booster over to the ASOC. It's going to be Convoy 1 to be the leader, followed by the booster. It's a very exciting day for the vehicle system engineers as we're offloading the um, launch vehicle that will carry the GOES-S satellite. Here comes the Centaur second stage, with its pressurized stainless steel tank as thin as a dime. Unable to support its own weight until fully fueled, it's carried off the ship by a specialized trailer. Next comes the Atlas V booster, all 106 feet of it. This booster and four solid rocket motors have one job, provide enough energy at liftoff for the entire launch vehicle and payload to overcome the pull of Earth's gravity. I never get tired of seeing the rockets come in. It's very exciting, especially on the Mariner. Now on land, a challenging cross-space transport lies ahead to the Atlas Space Flight Operations Center. Inside this multifunctional facility, crews will remove the protective coverings, inspect the hardware, and install the final flight components. For now, this mission remains a go, but the highly complex job of stacking the rocket is still to come.